0: Welcome to Beyond Religion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. We are back after my family having been sick since the week before Thanksgiving, and today's episode with Pastor Amy Butler is a great place to dive back in. This is the third Sunday of Advent, for those of you who observe, the Sunday set apart for joy. I'm keeping the time in my head, even though I'm not on a church staff anymore. It's my first Advent, not part of a church staff in 25 Advents. It's peculiar and bittersweet, and it's also a relief. I find myself without that container helping me hold the mystery and the metaphor and the purely secular consumerist side of Christmas. It's always fun, especially with kids around, but it's really feeling unbalanced, like a diet of only eating cookies and sugar, which seems like it might be fun at first, and after a day, you want something more substantive. So here I am, outside the container, Waiting for that light that shines in the darkness, watching for that presence so fully incarnated, it makes us all come fully alive too if we but awaken to it. Well, conversations like today's are something of a container for me and certainly are lights on the path. And I hope they are for you too. As we get ready, let me tell you a bit about Amy. Since 2000, she's had the great honor of serving and loving four faith communities in various pastoral roles, St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church in New Orleans, Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., the Riverside Church in the city of New York, National City Christian Church in Washington, D.C. Like so many female clergy, she was the first woman to take the senior role at Calvary, at Riverside, and at National City. A decade after she left New Orleans, I became the first woman senior pastor at the church that ordained her, St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church. Serendipities abound. Most Sundays, should you want to hear her in the pulpit, you'll find Pastor Amy at Community Church of Honolulu, where she has served as interim pastor this year, 2023, And is serving as designated pastor for 2024 and 2025. CCH is an open and affirming congregation filled with people from all walks of life. Amy is also mom to three extraordinary now adult children, Hayden, Hannah, and Sam. And that is another tender point of connection that Amy and I share. And you'll hear us uh, get a little verklempt as we talk about our babies and the role of pastor that we have each played, though she in many more pulpits and much more prominent roles than I. She's also here to talk about her new book, Beautiful and Terrible Things. It is a deeply personal memoir about the nature of faith, the inevitability of doubt, and the importance of radical love in facing all the beautiful and terrible things that happen in our lives. And it includes a chapter about the genesis of invested faith, You'll hear her talk some about this organization she founded, Invested Faith, is bringing together social innovation and the resources of America's religious institutions, helping close the gap between them and invest in the well-being of all neighbors, rebuilding communities and doing the work of the gospel in the world. I scripted out how I wanted this conversation to flow and what questions I plan to ask Amy, but grief and emotion are surprising and weird. And I got a little choked up as we talked. And I talked more than I meant to. And I left some questions unasked. So it's a real conversation. It's a good talk. And I'm grateful for Amy's time and generosity. And the space that she held for me when I was intending to hold the space for her and for you all. Um, Nevertheless, it's not just about me. And I hope this conversation will mean as much to you as it did to me. And it's time now, let's dive in as we consider what exists beyond religion. you were just asking we're gonna get into of like where am I with church where am I with churches how this podcast came to be um okay um and normally I would dive into your personal story and start from like family of origin through where you are now but you have a book that does all of that so we'll be promoting in the show notes how you could give this gift as a Hanukkah or Christmas present. You can get it quickly wherever you purchase books, beautiful and terrible things, faith, doubt, and discovering a way back to each other. Uh, Do you have a copy close by where you are? Yes, I do. Okay. I'm going to ask you to read a couple of things as we talk. Great. How are you, by the way? Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm good. I've been back about three weeks from the book tour, which, by the way, how did I not know that that was going to be like the hardest experience of my life so I did 13 stops in five weeks and you know the the material I cover in this book is not like fluffy you know it's like yeah. hard deep stuff and so um, it was very draining like physically emotionally spiritually all the things and also for those of us who are control freaks I've never done this before so I was like sort of making it up as I went and so that was very trying and I think I've just now kind of got my feet back under me and um, I'm feeling glad to be home so thank you for asking.
0: Good well and uh, you're very uh, fortunate that home is Hawaii <laughs> you can you can also be home in the place that is centering I, I was just in Puerto Rico a couple weeks ago And even though I'm certainly not from an island, I grew up on the Gulf Coast. And any place that is that connected to water is so centering for me. So I'm glad that home is where you are. That's really great. And I can imagine that a lot like church, (laughs) reading this book makes people feel like they have access to the most intimate parts of your life in a really casual way. And so Mm -hmm. I can just imagine the questions that people line up to ask either at the end for a QA and a or when you're signing a book?
1: You know, some of the things really surprised me what people were so aghast about. Um, but like good reminder, like work through your stuff before you print it in a publication because the things that were touching on people's pain, you know, feel resolved in my own life. Right. So it, it just, it surprised me. It was, it was interesting.
0: So, were they taking issue with some of the things that you shared, or some of your life choices?
1: You know, I really prepared for people to be uh, critical of me as a mother, or for a variety of reasons. I mean, take your choice. I did. I did not have that experience at all. Yeah. I mean, people were very respectful of my story and. I think most of all, found a lot of threads that they could tie to their own, you know, things like family is hard, church is hard, marriage is hard, life is hard, and we all share those things. And so I was surprised I had prepared for like, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. But I didn't get any questions like that. I mean, you could try now.
0: <laughs> I don't, I think I'm also in that category of like, yeah, that's, a, I, it's all resonance for me. Before we do jump into the book, you and I have circled past each other and we have the overlap in our story of New Orleans and the church that ordained you is the church that I served as senior pastor for the past decade. But I can't remember how long were you here total?
1: So I started out as a member at St. Charles in 1996, and then I left uh, the staff of St. Charles to go to Calvary in 2003. So okay. just before Katrina. Yeah, just right before Katrina. That's right.
0: And then one of your sons went to Tulane, right?
1: Yes, the youngest one went to Tulane.
0: I remember running he into it the one there. time at Whole Foods, being that like yes. creepy lady like, hello, I know your mother. <laughs> but I, I gave them the space. I tried to be cool, but my kids have made sure that I know I have no cool. That's not in me anymore. Um, oh, since I'm in the process of leaving, I wonder for people who lived here and left, is there part of the city that stays with you that you miss? I'm sure there are parts
1: that you don't. You know, New Orleans was a very formative time in my life personally and professionally. I, I, really came into being a mother in, in that town. And, you know, you're never going to forget like dragging the ladder and setting it up and putting your kids up in the little seat for Mardi Gras. And those were like, those are like idyllic. Those are idyllic memories for me. And I learned some, I, that was my first time out being a pastor. And yes. so like I made all the hard mistakes there and I will always have really deep affection for that city, but it's kind of like a, a distance that has softened with yeah. time, right? Yeah, Norms is a really hard city to live in, and the realities yeah. of living there are really intense. But in my memory, it's like where my babies were growing up, yeah. You know, it's... where I met these nuns that changed my life, and you know,
0: yeah, yeah. Hang out with the Jesuits on the weekends and eat some crawfish. I- I'm trying to keep those good memories in perspective. Uh, it's a it's a city that is deeply problematic not that all aren't uh we went to see John Mulaney this past weekend and he in opening was just kind of riffing about the Gulf Coast in general and then he said something about New Orleans being the only city in the world that's haunted outside and I thought that was Mm -hmm. fantastic I know he's making a joke but there's so much truth about uh there's just a vibe here that's more than the party vibe there's there's just a lot where that the tension of everything is held closely.
1: Yes. And I think there's a lot of extremes. There's so much beauty and there's so much gritty pain. And like Norms is a city that you either love or hate. I mean, it's just yeah. there's no like sure. benign feeling about it. That might be a really
0: nice segue into your book too, right? If you can, if you can handle the beautiful alongside the gritty pain, then there's a lot that's really special here. So in going through your book, I want to start at the end and work backward. Great. Somehow, as I started looking at questions that that's what I want to do. And if you have a copy close by, I want to start on page 173. This is the last sermon that you preached at Riverside. I'm not going to ask about Riverside, though, but I want to hear these paragraphs in your voice, three paragraphs, if you will.
1: When the institution of church lets you down, it feels almost as if God is responsible for the betrayal. At least that's how it felt to me. I've never been a mystical person. I believe in God, and I have for most of my life so far. But I don't see God in the sunrise or feel closer to the divine on mountaintop. I feel God in relationships, in holding a brand new baby or helping a family say goodbye. When I get into the baptism pool and help someone celebrate their faith, I find God sometimes in a worship service or even occasionally in a church council meeting. The community that loves and holds my life becomes the tangible expression of God to me, a mysterious force that pulls us toward one another, helps us learn to love one another, then becomes a means by which we do something to make the Lord better, as Jesus taught us. It's a dangerous thing, though, to confuse the church with God. The church is not and never has been divine, even in the moments where it has been eternal for healing and hope and change. But while I stand by those words, the truth is that I never have been able to fully separate the two.
0: I know that I will have a lot of emotion probably in this conversation because I am still really crispy around the edges about leaving church and leaving a role I thought that I would be in for a long time. Not that 10 years isn't a long time. And I'm in a season of healing. And I know that there are so many pastors who are right there with me. At the conclusion of that sermon, you said sometimes the church breaks our hearts far more often than it does that gospel work of healing us. But we must remember that the church is not God and that love always wins in the end. So I'd love to hear, where are you with these words today? Four years after a very public exit from that prominent pulpit.
1: So those of you who read the book will know that the backstory is that nobody knew that I was leaving the next day. And there were a lot of legal machinations that went into me being able to preach that sermon. And so I wanted to like try to say like everything that I could say. You know, I, mean, I still feel really emotional about it. And, you know, knowing that like nobody listens to our sermons anyway, but, you know, or remembers what we say, but it was really important to me to like check exactly the words. I wanted to leave with these people who, you know, for the most part had done nothing unkind to me. It was just a small group, right? And so these are people I loved. These are people I baptized. These are people I walked through pain in their lives. And I was trying to say when I said that um, the church is going to let you down, but don't think it's God. Mm. And then as I was speaking to them, I was speaking also to myself right like don't up, and um, so I started Invested Faith, which is um, a fund for churches that are closing and I repurpose, we repurpose money to support social entrepreneurs. And I also serve a church. So I have this like dance with, you know, loving and hating the institution, knowing that parts of it need to die, yes. knowing that when church is good, it can be so good. And loving those parts so very deeply. Um, In short, it's still a dance for me. And I love church because I love what it can be when it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not nothing, even though it's a little group of people. And I sure wish I could say that your story was a one-off, right? <laughs> your story is a one-off and it's the only time it's been one little group of people who've caused a lot of pain. I felt Every that even, even in a, even in a situation where I was leaving on my own terms, no one had asked me to leave. I had been in a very long season of discernment, probably stayed too long because because of that thing, like because of those relationships, because of the love there, that it's, it hurts to step away from, but I, even in the, in that context, I know the pressure of I've only got this one. I've got one more minute. I've got one more minute yes. with you. What am I going to say?
1: Yes. and that, that really has led me here to community church of Honolulu, where I'm finding in, at, at national city too, just some of the best expressions of church that have helped to heal me. Because I will confess to you, I'm an Enneagram three. So public failure is like death to me. Yeah. And um it it was brutal after Riverside. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I can only imagine. And I um I'm gonna ask a, a couple of questions in a minute about some, not about the brutal. I don't wanna dig into your wounds, but I have some questions about where your story resonates. Um And some of that would be when there's that little group of people, right? A colleague of mine now serving in Austin, but when he was in Louisiana serving in Baton Rouge, someone working on the administrative staff of the church hacked into his email. So I thought of him as you were writing about that. They were looking for indicators that he wanted to move the church to being welcoming and affirming. They felt like he was too far to the left and too far down that road and they found exactly what they were looking for and they circulated the email. So I wasn't at all surprised when you tell the story of someone hacking into your email when you're in DC. On page 132, you describe her handing out copies of an email at the door following worship one Sunday in which you had written, I'm so sick of this bullshit. And I would like to note, Did you interact with her that day? Was she avoiding you? Was she being brazen?
1: Um, She was uh, the grandmother of a staff member. And so she was sort of being used Mm. for her longevity in the church. And I don't blame her at all. She was just sort of like a pawn in the crazy, but you know, it was just one family and they would do things like bring in 14 members and sit in the second pew then all get up and leave when I stood up to preach. You know, just like oh. mean things that you would reprimand your kindergartner That's for right. doing. <clears throat> and I, I want to say something about this is because in every church there are those people who happen to your email and who use the old people and who do all those things. The painful part for me is the whole middle that keeps silent. Yeah. It's not the ugly people. There's always ugly people. Like in the church conflict situations that I've lived through, my deepest pain, and I'd be curious to hear from you if this is true for you, has come from the people who have stayed silent. And I just think to myself, like, have that, haven't I done a good enough job? Like, haven't you been listening to me? Like, what about take up your cross and follow me? Did you miss? Why are you being silent? Like, yeah. this is like life or death. Yeah. And that to me is the deepest pain.
0: Absolutely. I think my next set of questions are about codependence and all of this really swirls together because I, I know that I grew resentful In the same way that you can in a marriage, that if you don't talk about it soon enough, by by the time you talk about it, it has has grown so big. It's no one thing anymore. Um, But I I had grown really resentful of, I'm making these sacrifices for you. Don't you know that I've maxed out four credit cards so I can be here? Don't you know that I'm, you know, have gained 50 pounds because I'm so stressed out and exhausted. And then I I worked with a coach at one point who said, no, who asked, who in the church asked you to do these things? Was that, there was a conversation about this where you were asked? I was like, well, no, <laughs> well, no, no one asked, but that doesn't change the fact that there is, there's bullshit everywhere and there are mean people everywhere. But I feel particularly in this crisis moment of church, when there are so many people who want to go back to the nostalgia mixed with amnesia of, of whatever times past were, it that it's it's coming out in all these types of misbehavior um, and really yes. unhealthy behavior and that's where that silent middle comes in is this dreadful and it's fear killing us yes yes a dreadful it's fear we can't afford to lose colleagues. one more person
1: that's right so you would that's rather right. him right. stay
0: here than yeah then let's yeah. go down yeah. this road yeah. of radical love truly yeah.
1: yeah yeah um and it's it's calling people in like our colleagues to actually put our lives on the line and say like, for the love of all that is holy, please be brave, please. And so many times our people won't, won't do it.
0: Or the cost is ultimately too high. And I have criticized colleagues who I think who love the purple church, which I have really criticized, but I haven't been in one. I haven't been in the mountains of North Carolina where it's a little country neighborhood church. Um, But but I, it's frustrating. It's beyond frustrating to me when when colleagues are not willing to speak out against the past presidential administration and anything that was going on, or wouldn't step into the conversation around Ferguson, or won't be openly welcoming and affirming and criticize anti trans legislation or anti queer welcome in the church. Um, so that has been easy for me to stand at a distance and poke at and be like. You know, you're chicken for not doing this. But then I've also allowed such a cost to my own spirit of wanting to lead in an open hearted way. Like when I say I really believe in the revolutionary love of Christ, that I really do believe that love can transform the world, that I'm like ripping my chest open and laying my heart bare. And then lo and behold, people don't take care of it. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) I know. I know. So I think my question for you in this, can we do better? Is it worth it? (laughs) Is it worth the cost to mind and body and spirit?
1: So I have two thoughts about that. The first is I think people like you and me, because of the fact that we're women and we can't hide that in the Baptist world, right? We were sort of dumped in the deep end at the beginning. So we were already swimming against the stream. So I try to be sensitive to my white middle aged male colleagues who have always had it so easy and who are now finding it hard. Um I'm not always successful at that, but I just think, you know, we knew going into it that this was gonna be hard, right? And no, I don't think it's I don't think the cost is worth it for many of us. Yeah. I don't think a cost is worth I think doing what you did is brave. And um, I think probably had I stayed another five years at Riverside, I would have died. And I do not mean that metaphorically. Yeah. And you know, we do this work because we're trying to fill something in our own souls. What is, it, what is it they say, like people in helping professions need help? Yes, we do. We're trying to answer questions about God and community for ourselves too. and. And so very often we do that to the detriment of our own souls and yeah. our families. It takes a lot of courage to walk away.
0: Well, and then there are the shadows to that, you know, that we're we're wanting to ask these questions and maybe even possibly find some answers or at least find better questions. But then there there can also be that shadow of why do we want to be helpers? Did you know Rabbi Cohn, who was at Temple Sinai? He would have been there when you were yes. Here
1: yes I
0: knew him okay so he's retired now Ed tells this story of being at dinner one night at his house and the phone kept ringing so this is he probably still has a landline but this is back in the day of everybody having a landline and the phone keeps ringing and he's not answering it and then it would go silent and it would start to ring again and finally his wife just couldn't take it anymore and said go on they need you Yep. And it was this moment of (laughs) like she's just calling him out for it and of course like he goes he answers the phone it's something that he I don't know needs to respond to but god that is that voice has stuck with me of they need you and how that's linked to my own sense of identity and worthiness yes yes um, you talk about it really openly Um, especially later in the book. I'm I'm throwing out page numbers in case people like want to grab their books and look along. Uh, On 123, you write, the sadness is deeply sad and the joy is ecstatically joyful. And we feel that people need us, a feeling we can become dependent on as if it were a drug. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Related. My son, my oldest son is almost 30 and he reads voraciously though he has dyslexia. And so he listened to the book on Audible and I said, how was it listening to me talk to you for eight hours? And he said, oh, it wasn't you. It was Pastor Amy.
0: Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, when, when do I show up? As myself when I show up as Pastor Amy. Like, who is myself? I don't yeah. know. Do I know? <laughs>
0: like God. Yeah, all the things. Yeah, I um this the I don't think I can do this. You writing about the Christmas Eve service. That really hit me. Um, because that's where we are. Um, this is my first advent in 25 years to not be in a church. This is my first Christmas Eve in 25 years to not be at the front leading. Um, And my kids want to know, they keep saying, can we go to our church for Christmas Eve? Um, And I think I underestimated and I probably am still underestimating, we'll only learn with time. What did it mean to them? And my older child, he's about to turn 18. So, he remembers a lot of it. So that's just really beautiful that your son would be able to say it wasn't you as Pastor Amy and that he can make that distinction too. Like that's, of course, that takes a lot of maturity and, and life growth, right? To be able to see your parent can have multiple identities. Um,
1: oh my gosh, um, that conversation is just so multi-layered, isn't it? Yeah. 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 We started, Elizabeth, we started with good intentions. Yeah. We wanted to save the world. We wanted to raise children who, you know, had a faith surround yeah. them. We just didn't know we were going into such dangerous territory.
0: Yeah, for sure. There was a moment, my younger child, God bless. I don't know what journey they're on, but it's a fun one that it's going to keep everybody on our toes. Uh, early when that kid was little in Sunday school at St. Charles, which is pretty progressive and open-minded and typically like really into heresy and and not shocked by that my kid is saying i don't believe that god created the world i just think that that's a story and the Sunday school teacher was so upset but wouldn't say anything to me and went to the custodian and complained to the custodian one day who then came to me and said well you know So-and-so was really shocked about that. So I just went straight to her. I was like, hey, this seems really out of left field that this is coming from Carolyn. Can can you fill me in on... But at the same time, the teacher was upset that I didn't care. Okay.
1: Mm.
0: All right. Mm. So my six-year-old or eight-year-old or whatever they were at that point is already asking the questions about myth and metaphor. It was interesting to me that even in that space, there was not a a concept of how do we teach this to our children in a different way than what we inherited? What do we do when our children's questions are as big or bigger than ours?
1: That's right. And I mean, for me personally, it's interesting. My daughter is visiting. She's about to turn 27. And yesterday we were sitting and talking and her boyfriend asked me, do you think people our age are more likely or less likely to go to church. And I was like, uh, less. I said, Hannah is a person of faith. She's far less likely to join the church on the corner than she is to serve on the board of the current project, one of the invested faith fellows. And she just looked at me and said, absolutely. Absolutely. You know. So our challenge now is not to like keep an institution alive for the sake of keeping it alive, but to find new ways for, for your youngest kid to like heal the world in the way of Jesus.
0: Absolutely. Well, and that's what one question I, I really did not intend to make this about my own therapy, but it's hard to read your book as a pastor or a former pastor and not find those wounds that are similar, those bruises that seem to be shaped the same way. And one of the critiques I certainly got consistently was that I was not growing the church with young people, but my phone is full of young people who still text me, a college student from Loyola who has finished his PhD at this point and will still text me out of the blue and be like, oh, pastor, you're not going to believe what's going on in my life now. And that's part of what has changed. You can't quantify that. That's not money going into an offering plate. It's not helping to support a Wednesday night program everything has changed forever. And there's so much grief in that for a lot of people. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And so maybe my early question of, is it worth it to my spirit is really, is it worth propping up the institution to keep a job that looks like the job I thought I was supposed to have? In a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. what you're doing now is really part of the way forward is it's my livelihood can't be connected to any, probably any one thing that may still be being very defensive and protective, but it certainly can't be connected to what it costs to run a church dollars and cents budget wise. Yes.
1: yes, They can't afford it.
0: And then I became super resentful that I didn't feel valued when the truth is they can't afford it. They couldn't afford me, much less to pay me what my male predecessor had, which is certainly an issue that you ran up against as well.
1: Holy cow. Okay, yes. Yes, all the things. But yes. So that's why I think, you know, writ large, philanthropy is changing. And the people, our colleagues who are out there doing the work of healing the world, whether it's in the institution or out, have to find different ways to fund Our work because we cannot be tied to an institution that is intractable. We cannot because the cost of pushing change will kill us. Yeah, and the world is too broken. We we have to be out there doing doing this other work. And so, my you know, I write in the book that my dad is just like, "Please go to law school. Please go to law school." I would be a terrible lawyer because I'm always like. how do you feel about that? Like, there must be a way to reinterpret this rule. Let's change it. Let's do it differently. And I think that's the kind of leadership that we need now in the institution. It's going to threaten people like never before.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You write about uh, hanging on, hanging on tight to the clear definitions of successful life. Successful life being balancing motherhood, and work, and being excellent at both, and being above reproach, and constantly spinning all those plates, and making sure none of them ever drop. And there are so many costs to that kind of performative perfection as well. To me, it's part of the oppressive systems and structures that need to be torn down. It's part of what I would hope that clergy people are railing against. Um, And it's really common in our field. And I wonder what wisdom you have for the perfectionists among us and the people pleasers and the ones who still think, well, that was just Amy. Well, that was just Elizabeth. Well, that was just, and start listing all the ones.
1: Yeah. One of the things that came to light on the book tour was everybody was like, how could you say that out loud? Mm. Like, how could you admit that? Or like, how could you write about that? And the reason is because I'm a freaking really good plate spinner. Like I am a very, very good plate spinner. Mm. I, I would have stayed in my marriage just because I don't like to fail. I would have stayed. I would have, I would have done all of this stuff. And in the case of my life, you know, my failures or whatever you want to call them, were public, so I can't hide them. Yeah. So and that was the only way of God, like yanking me mm. into. Like, let's be honest about the cost of putting up a front for the world. Yeah. Like, don't do it, Amy. You will die. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do well, it. And, then, and the, I'm like, I'm going to do it. And yeah. then God's like, no, you're not.
0: <laughs> and then the absolute irony of living this way, being the total opposite of what we're professing about Jesus who goes off to the wild places, about Jesus who flips over tables because the religious leaders are losing their minds trying to protect the temple. You know, Jesus gathering with the wrong people at tables. Such open-hearted, radical, vulnerable living. And then here I am with my mask and my literal costume really wanting to perform. I don't know what. It didn't feel like holiness, definitely perfection. Um, I have another rabbi friend who tells his congregations, I cannot be Jewish for you which is yeah. so
1: great. I um, mean, you and I know, we know why our colleagues do this. Yeah. We know because we do it, our, have done it ourselves. It takes a lot of courage to be authentic because you get shot at and yeah. and it, and it hurts it and does. that's real. Well,
0: and also playing into the patriarchal role of this is how male leaders have done it. Somehow, I can't speak for you. But I think there was also an expectation of those who taught me, you'll go in and do this like men did. I know I had a, a preaching professor in seminary who's like, you really need to have modest hair and don't wear a lot of jewelry. You don't want to distract when you're preaching. And I don't think she just meant sexually, though. I'm sure that that was part of it. But also it's like, don't let them remember that you're a woman. <laughs> like, Be so good that they don't remember you're a woman
1: and that's right
0: so i mean just add it to the list of performances that I, I i'd like to think that i allowed myself to be fully mother and fully woman and all of those things um
1: but things i think people find threatening you yeah, know exactly i have a, i have a story that i didn't tell in the book about um a well-known colleague of ours who is giving me some advice before i was introduced to the congregation at riverside so as I read in the book is it was like a Miss America moment. I'm sitting in the front and then like I have to stand up and wave at everybody. And the day before I had said to this colleague, do you have any advice for me for tomorrow? And he said, wear all black and like pants and like, a uh, um, wear something that is very like loose and not form fitting and you know i had like black stiletto boots and a pencil skirt and a red jacket to wear because that's who i am and i wore it yeah. and sometimes i think back to that moment thinking you know if i had been less who i am if i had if i had like a warrant interesting this make me emotional like if i if i had worn the black you know, shapeless, whatever. And then take it back to, I'm but so I... sick of
0: the bullshit. <laughs> I, I preached yeah. a sermon. where I, I don't even remember what the sermon was, but this was in another church when I was in Virginia. I just remember feeling so good about it. And like, God, that, like, this is what I wanted to say. And this is how I wanted to say it. And my delivery hit the way I wanted it to. And the first comment to me was, you really have those va 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 curves, don't you? First comment. Oh, shit. So yeah, no, no, should I have worn the black and should I have worn the loose thing? Like, should I have been less of who I am as a person? If that's what it takes to be a pastor now, God, the whole thing is that we're supposed to be helping each other come alive. So if the very thing that it takes to be in that role is to be dead to yourself, God, that's the ultimate cost. It's ridiculous
1: ironically i mean in some weird way that's what took me down there and i always say to people if you want to know why my time at Urbside ended you have to buy the book but you know i'm an overachiever so like i i was engaged in the lamest sex scandal ever in the history of anybody yeah like I failed at a second handle. so let's like, talk
0: about that let's talk that? about that so I remember <laughs> that the emails of course nobody loves gossip more than church gossip right like church gossipers yeah, yeah. are just like it's texting it's emailing so that New York Post headline was just flying everywhere this is before the kind of more more reasoned Washington Post follow-up and the very first thing I thought when I read this story about you being on a trip with colleagues and a parishioner and you go into a sex positive shop, my first thought was, oh, she thought they were her friends. Yeah. And I felt that so deeply because that wound is another one for me. Let's call it a bruise. It's not really a wound, but that tender place of part of opening your heart up and loving people is Some of it is silly and fun and we're delighting and we're doing a fall festival in the courtyard and we are at Mardi Gras together. And so it feels like we're friends and these colleagues are my people. And then you find out one of them went and told on you like it's elementary school.
1: Yeah. It was because it's New York and Riverside Church. It was much more politically, a lot of political machinations behind that, but to your point that our work is so hard, we depend on our colleagues to stand with us and they become part of the silent middle. Yeah. Who, you know, I I gotta, I gotta watch my ass. Sorry. Like, you know, I I was your friend, but not really. And, um, that was the worst part of that whole situation because, you know, there was a staff of 200 at Riverside. So that was really my congregation. And, they dragged me through the mud. My friends did that. And I just remember calling my dad and being like, dad, um, you know, you and I, in our 50 years of life together have never talked about vibrators. So we're going to talk about vibrators. Yeah. And he just like fell off his chair, laughing he sat off. and also it wasn't funny. Like, why the hell am I on the front of the New York Post? I mean, I'm thinking now about the presidents of MIT and Harvard, who are all women, who are getting total shit right now that they would never have gotten were they men. Yeah. I mean, it's triggery to me.
0: There's an essay that I keep writing and leaving because I don't know what I'm going to do with it or if I'll ever do anything with it. But it's based on The Devil Wears Prada. I don't know if you read the book or know the movie, but- the, the girl who, and Andrea, who's come into this job and hates it, is constantly being told, you know, a million girls would kill for this job. And so she's sort of being, mm-hmm. like, gaslit into, oh, this job is very important. Oh, I should abandon myself. Oh, I should change the way that I dress. And I think that that's another element to the whole first woman, first woman senior pastor at Riverside or in Louisiana or whatever it is, has that T- that tone, that sort of echo of, you know, there are a million girls, you know, there are all those women who wanted mm-hmm. these jobs and churches wouldn't hire them. You stand That's for it. all of them.
1: That's right. That's right. That's a heavy man for the wear. The heavy man to the wear yeah.
0: mm. I had not thought about you being, when you're leading 200 staff, that really being your congregation, that you're not having those, at least not very many of those same vulnerable, intimate connections with people in the congregation and the pews. Um, But in all of it, whether it's wanting colleagues to be close heart friends or loving the people in the pews, it's interesting to me that Barna Group continues to release these studies about pastors and loneliness. So in 2015, Mm -hmm. Barna was reporting 42% of pastors say they are lonely. And in July of this year, it's now sixty-five percent of pastors saying they are deeply lonely, and we know that that matches numbers around the community, right? Like it's numbers around the nation of people who feel deeply lonely. But it points to me to another problem: we're like we're doing this wrong. Yes.
1: Yes. I. I, I yes. And I don't write about them specifically in my book, but a lot of people know that I'm part of a group called Preacher Camp, and we've been together for 20 years. There are six of us in the group, and we've met together for a week every year. Our families all know each other. Like it's and And it's good, good, you know, those folks have good people, and those folks have saved my life. On so many occasions. that I didn't even nobody told me I needed that. But um like one of my friends said to me, I don't think you should talk when you go out and talk about your book. I don't think you should talk about losing your faith. Um, and I'm like, this entire book is about me losing my faith, finding my faith, losing my faith, finding my faith, losing my faith, finding my faith, which is what any honest pastor or person of faith would experience. But I I distinctly remember. My colleagues saying to me, we hear you saying you don't believe in God anymore because the church is being shitty. Mm-hmm. We are going to hold your faith for you. We will hold it for you. And then however long it takes for you to make your way back, it will be here for you. Yeah. And um, I would say, you know, for almost two years at Calvary, I just, I didn't really believe in God because the church has yeah. being so shitty. And... Um, my colleagues held my faith for me. Mm. And like, how do you do this work if you don't help? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah,
0: and and there are there are, there are so many people who are envious, admire, and are envious of that group. Um, especially, can we just have a John Ballinger fan club for a minute? Like...
1: <laughs> I love John. I
0: love John Ballinger. Um, because you can't force that kind of community. You can't fake that kind of friendship. You can't curate your way into something that's as special as what it seems you all have had with each other
1: that's Fire. right and what we didn't know was like some of us were young parents when we started and we couldn't come if we didn't bring our families right. so we started bringing our families and that was like totally accidental and now my children have pastors like they are like texting the dawn flowers like the best gift I could have given them yeah it like they got a whole team of pastors that are not the mom. That's amazing. Thank God. Yeah.
0: I wonder, Amy, what what would it even look like if if the whole magic wand thing could happen and you were to create a church where the, that stuff didn't exist anymore and people were able to be fully themselves, including the pastor. And Relationships were about waking up and coming fully alive. What would we have to let go of to get to that?
1: Well, you know, I'm serving. I'm serving a small church now, and I love it because I'm in a culture where I was raised, and I'm indigenous, and I'm part of the community, and so I understand how everything works. A lot of people don't know about me that I spent 30 years of my life like, trying to act like a white woman mm. and not always doing well at it. So I'm here in this place that feels like home and we're already learning to be ourselves, but like, what are we going to do with this five acres of property able to $24 million? Yeah. Like, we are not are by far not the only congregation around this country who are dealing with the gift and the curse of endowments and women's missionary funds and organ maintenance funds, and what are we gonna do if we don't have these things? We won't be the church. Yeah. That's that's not true. That's not true. And so if I could create a reality. In which we could somehow live with our hearts and our hands open where we would go around and say like, oh, you know, maybe the Women's Missionary Fund is not best used to send like shoeboxes to Africa. Maybe we can use that money to, you know, fund the basketball program who's working with the kids down the street. Yeah. Like, what would happen if we would create a church that would nimble like that, that just like moves with the push of God's spirit? That's my dream. That's my dream.
0: And you're doing a lot of that through invested faith, right?
1: Invested faith is so fun for me because I meet colleagues of ours, young colleagues of ours who come out of seminary and they're like, "Mm, the institution is not for me. I'm going to start a coffee roasting company or I'm starting a brewery or a t-shirt company or whatever and like impacting these unjust systems and creating church in the most unexpected ways. And as somebody, and you'll notice who's been like in the trenches trying to push the institution to just shift a little bit. Like hearing that there's a whole generation of people coming behind us who are like, we got this. Yeah. Like, you know, we have a collective of food truck owners in Wilmington, Delaware, who are using church kitchens, and I'm baptizing them and doing their funerals and their weddings, and that's church. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, God.
0: Well, what what I'm witnessing they're- of Gen Z is that they are not okay with incremental change. <laughs> that they're oh. That can burn to the they ground. Want it. I really don't
1: care because I, I'll be
0: I'll be over here at the food trucks.
1: It it's, falls to us though. It yeah. falls to us to be to beg the five old women who are sitting in the pew. Mm. Look at what you can do with what you have. Yeah, God's calling you out to the deeper water. Come on, come on, you can yeah. do it. And that's still hard.
0: And and not every pastor gets to reap that harvest to use one of our old church metaphors. Um, and I, I think that that's some of where I'm still beating myself up. And and hopefully with time, I can look back and see that wasn't just some incremental shifts. So those were some really significant shifts that move toward whatever happens 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Yes.
1: Um, yeah.
0: And I, I think jumping way back to some of that performance and perfectionism, there can also be that, um, lure of the celebrity pasture and I'm going to be the one who wins. I'm going to be the one who succeeds. It does the sexy and the fun headline stuff. And, and really it's sometimes, sometimes it's just that we went a couple of clicks more towards wholeness, a couple of clicks more towards honesty and less pretense
1: yes 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 to all of that i mean i think a lot about like what is your legacy what do you want your legacy to be you know that you helped people shift a little bit just a little bit see the world in a different way use what they had to yeah to heal something that was broken
0: while you yourself are healing and while you yourself are learning to see the world in a different way I reached out to a couple of colleagues who are women and pastors and I knew that they had read your book. So I asked what would they want to know if they were sitting down with you? One of the questions we've already talked about, what do you think the tr- the future church needs to let go of? But the other part of that and what things does it need to hold on to? Mm.
1: That's a beautiful question. I think we're craving ritual. We're craving Communities in which we can be authentically ourselves. We're craving leaders we can believe in. We're craving change, to your point, that we can see and feel and touch. The church at points in its history has done all of those things and done them well. Yeah. So do it again. Yeah. Do it again. Something about what you're saying is
0: bringing to mind the scene in Home Alone, where the scary next door neighbor man goes into the church by himself because he's listening to his granddaughter's rehearsal. And, and that being a motif in movies that the audience is to understand this set apart place that is special and healing. And even in that scene, we're supposed to understand that something almost magic is happening here. And we're, we are craving that. Desperate for that. Desperate for those places. Yes. Thin places and magic places. Um, There's an episode, the last episode I did actually was with a friend of mine who's a musician. We met in church, but he is in all kinds of places beyond and around church. Um, And he's really into elves and like the magic that lives in boulders and all this stuff. And I'm like, give it to me. I want to hear it. I want to hear the wisdom from all of the the other traditions around the planet and the mythologies and the weirdness. And um, to me, church at its best can really hold some weirdness when we are being Oh, it should be a place for
1: us to, to wonder and doubt and believe and not believe and ask all the questions and say the things that your youngest child said in Sunday school.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So another friend, another colleague asks, would you do it all over again? If you could have seen what would happen at each beautiful and terrible point of ministry, would you go into pastoral leadership at all?
1: Oh, this question.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an unfair question. I don't know.
1: Freaking no! Of course not. I would have. I would have. I would have gone into corporate America, and I would have become a successful CEO and made a shit ton of money and whatever. No, of course not. And. I'm not to the point where I can say I'm grateful for what happened to me, yeah. but being a, a successful CEO wouldn't have been um, yeah. all roses either. So life hands us these experiences and we decide, you know, are they going to make us softer and more loving and more committed to being people of integrity or are they going to harden our hearts? Yeah, And we choose, that's it.
0: Yeah. Which is really the heart of your book. Exactly what you just said. We get to choose which, what we will allow, what will we do with these things that, that comes to come to us through every career and every path of life. And it's, it is not just the church. I think, I think my, hmm, I think my critique right now and my frustration right now with the church is that I still want to hold the church to a higher standard. I still want to believe that we are people gathering because we believe a different way of life is possible, that we really do believe that being people who love each other above all else is possible. We say it every week. Yeah. My final question takes us to the end of chapter four. It's the last two paragraphs at the end of chapter four. This is the Ash Wednesday service. And I wonder if you would again read just a little bit for us those last two paragraphs.
1: I stood again up at the altar, considering the service, with the new realization that in this holy moment, not everything rides on what I do next or what I say. Graham and his mom, me and my children, and with Laura, we all have other moments that are holy in so many ways, being vulnerable with those we love. My words don't have to be right, don't have to be perfect. This was just one beautiful new way to meet with God. And on every Ash Wednesday since, I have performed this service with love, warm with the knowledge that the presence of God is so much more expansive than we make it out to be. I remember my friend, I remember Laura, and I know that holiness exists here in the church on Ash Wednesday, yes. But it exists everywhere and anywhere else, too.
0: I really love that sentence. Holiness exists everywhere and anywhere else, too. And I wonder um, if you'd think out loud a little bit about what are the repercussions for saying and believing things like that for a successful career and being church, what absolutely has to ripple out when we affirm fully holiness exists everywhere and anywhere else too?
1: If you live that, and if you behave in that way in your professional life, they will take you down. They will take you down, or you'll die a little bit inside. That is just the truth of institutions and the intractable nature of an institution. And the God we love and serve is not threatened by the holy being anywhere and everywhere. The Mm -hmm. God we love and serve, who we want to know and whose work in this world we want to join, would say, this is a party, come on everybody, let's work together. And I just am not going to let go of that. I'm not going to let go of it. And thank God I have you and I have preacher camp and I have people who are right there with me and are refusing to let go of the dream. Um, Cause I just don't know. Well,
0: thank you for this book and I hope lots of people will read it and thank you for, what it takes to be that honest. You didn't have to write this and you didn't have to put it out there and you don't have to live the way that you live and you don't have to preach the way that you preach, but I know you would be diminished if you tried any other way. And the world would be poorer if you were a CEO and off living a private life somewhere. So thank you for your boldness and the way that you faced so much publicly. I really, I'm laughing, but it's, it's the it's night. It's the stuff of nightmares. I mean, truly, to wake up and find out the New York Post is writing <laughs> about me, and the fact that you want to have anything to do with the church is amazing to me. Amazing
1: it took a while. It, it takes, you know, more. and remember that as you're too.
0: I'm excited about Invested Faith too, and really watching eagerly as your work unfolds. I imagine the next decade of invested faith is just gonna explode as everything that we've talked about really comes to a head. And I hope yes. we'll keep talking and I'm, I'm eager to see what comes next for you.
1: Yes, Shane. Thank you. Same. Thanks
0: for your time.
1: Yes, thank you so much for the invitation and what a beautiful conversation. That's good.